Listener Production. We get people home. We let them know that we're here for them. This is what art can do. Art should be the arm and the shoulder and the kind eyes, all of which let others know you deserve to live and to be loved. That is what matters, baby. Bringing people home. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Actor Jacqueline McKenzie has been shining on stage, film and television for over 30 years. She first stormed onto our screens alongside Russell Crowe in the movie Romper Stomper. I still clearly remember my mum taking me along to see it and we were both speechless afterwards. Jacqueline McKenzie has that effect on you. She's a force of nature. The namesake of her most recent movie where she stars alongside Eric Banner and Deborah Lee Finesse. I'm about to share with you a conversation like no other that I've had on the podcast. Jacqueline shares in a way that's a stream of consciousness. I had my questions, but as you'll hear, I put them mainly aside to listen to this warm, wonderful and whirlwind of a woman. It was like being front row at a one-woman show, a peek behind the Hollywood curtain. Come along with me for this wonderful ride. You feel good? Yeah. You got your coffee? I do. It's a, a mix, but let's go. Yay. Let's go. I'm a bit of a chatter. We Perfect. might be here for a while. Well, I love a chat. Jacqueline McKenzie, it is such a joy to meet you. I feel like I know you because I've seen you through so yeah. many different incarnations mm-hmm. on the screen, on the stage. Did you grow up wanting to be an interviewer? I wanted presenter? to be Yarn Event. Oh, what a great, great that was ambition. Who I wanted to be. She I was still so want great, to be wasn't her. she? Well, you're so individual, and that's the thing. That's why you've managed to cut right through because. You just have to bring your own sense of, you know, wonder and, and joy and curiosity, and you certainly have that. I just asked that because I have the same feeling when I meet people that have been on shows that I've watched, and I didn't grow up wanting to be an actress, although I've happily fallen into that. I grew up as a fan of it, and so I still am absolutely a fangirl, and it's a bit embarrassing. I can get completely tongue-tied it generally happens with musicians, though, now. Really? I, yeah, because I think as actors, we, we know the insides of it and the outsides of it. We know where all the mystery is. Well, not all of it, obviously, not the stuff that an actor brings, but we know about the infrastructure around getting a shot. We see the cameras. We know about the makeup, hair and everything. So it takes away that level of mystery. It's a bit like knowing where people's skeletons are in their closets. You know what I mean? <laughs> but with musicians, it's just... I just think they're magic. Well, they're so cool. You talk about being tongue-tied still around people. You've had the most phenomenal career. You've worked with some of the biggest names in Hollywood. Mm. Al Pacino, Sandra Bullock, Samuel L. Jackson, (laughs) Kate Blanchett. 
Richard Roxburgh, Eric Banner, because of course you're in Force of Nature with him at the moment, which is sensational. Are there any of those people that you've got tongue-tied around or thought, oh my goodness, I'm working with them? Well, yes, but not Al Pacino. And this comes back to being a fan. So I didn't watch movies growing up, unfortunately. I, don't, I just didn't come from a movie-going family and we didn't live. You know when you hear stories about people saying, oh, I lived around the corner from a cinema and I used to go there the whole time. I think because I didn't grow up with movies in my sights, uh, the people who were in my sights were tennis players, cricketers, footballers. Oh, my God, the rugby league, Parramatta. You know, I was a massive Parramatta fan. We used to go out to the... Uh, SCG and sit on the hill and watch Parramatta either slay the dragons or get slayed by the seagulls, whatever. So they were my kind of heroes and television stars. So I watched The Odd Couple with Tony Randall. And that was like, I just watched him. It's the power of television. They're in your house. You're eating dinner and there they are. So MASH, The Odd Couple, all the fatty and skinnies, a bunch of very inappropriate black and white comedic BBC shows like Steptoe and Sons and that other one. Benny Hill. All that stuff because that's what was on our television. We didn't have much Australian stuff. So when I was doing that play with Al Pacino, we had wall-to-wall stars. It is the most unbelievable theatre troupe I've ever worked with. It was Paul Giamatti, Billy Crudup, Dominic Chianese, Al Pacino, Steve Buscemi, John Goodman. Gosh, Sterling Brown, first ever role out of acting school. And, um, and Jacqueline McKenzie. And me. But the relevance is, and Charles Durning, who was the beautiful father in Tootsie. I mean, amazing, mighty, Oscar-winning, incredible actor. And I, I'd seen a few of those films. So when I showed up on at work for the first day, it was, of course, Tony Randall's company, wasn't <gasps> it? It was American Actors Theatre was the company he had. And I was absolutely speechless because Tony Randall was at the table at the the read-through and there was Al over there, all these other mega wattage stars that I was probably very lucky I didn't have that reverence because I probably wouldn't have been able to act, but there was Tony Randall. Oh, my God. And I got to do improv, a three-months rehearsal in this hot-as-hell, old, old, old sort of disused warehouse. It was a whole floor down in New York. And I remember John Goodman was very overweight at that time. And I remember looking at him just sweating buckets and constantly moving. And I thought, my feet are sore standing here doing all these exercises. Imagine how his feet must feel carrying the extra weight. Oh, <laughs> how phenomenal. I It was hearing... really, I love collaboration. Oh. And that's the most important thing is when everyone's collaborating to make things and and everyone's trying to find where our powers are as individuals, but also to find a commonality so that we're all in the same play. The energy is is coming from a similar place because at the end of the day, you want a cohesive group and a cohesive story for our audience because at the end of the day, that's all it's about. And is that then how you manage to put aside oh my goodness, they're all these big names. It was more, we are in this together. We are collaborating. Yes. Well, I, I, the funny thing was, I, I just knew that we were at that point and I didn't have that, oh, it's happened in my gut. I didn't have that. How do you that. not have that I have an inter- Because I have an intellectual. I know that that's Sam Jackson, but I don't know him. I hadn't seen many of his films. I mean, I knew he was a star and I'd read about him and I admired him from afar. I hadn't watched 
Pulp Fiction. I hadn't watched Reservoir Dogs because I'm a big wuss. I really get scared. Really? Yeah, 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 really scared. You see, that blows me away that you get scared. But, but I inflict it on everyone do, else. <laughs> but what you do in your daily life as an actor, to me, is terrifying. What's that? In terms of putting yourself in other people's shoes, putting yourself on stage, being so vulnerable, being so open. To me, yes, that but, is but terrifying. This is more terrifying because this is, I don't have a script. I don't have a text. At the end of the day, everything is about the story. And that's one thing that NIDA taught me, actually, going to acting school. I don't believe a lot of the acting schools, any acting school can really teach acting at the level of engagement. I think you really do learn that in the playground as a kid. I, I think you learn that through your influences growing up. And, but you can certainly learn techniques to help you along the way and know how to break down a script. They teach you the most phenomenal stuff. So when you're untrained and just starting out, you can accident upon lots of things. And you, you think, oh, I know, I'll do this. And, and it requires you to be sort of at pitch, ready to go every day at the same sort of energy level with the same curiosity and the same feeling of safety and risk and all the things that you like to feel like you're flying. However, that requires you to be vulnerable, in which case you really need to be safe. If you're working with an ass hat <laughs> who is not a very nice temper or someone who really is absent, who doesn't really have any kind of enthusiasm themselves because perhaps that director has come through a very behind-the-scenes training, I guess, and come through a very visual sense and maybe he's, he's more shy than the actors or terrified than the actors. Of Because actors apparently can be terrifying to deal with. I don't know why, but apparently. And, and directors can say, oh, I, I was so scared when I first worked with an actor. And then you get directors who are more actor-centric and then sometimes you don't feel like you're in great hands technically with those guys. So you really have to know your techniques because they're fine to be around and collaborate and make you feel safe, but you need to know what the shots are and how that's going to technically tell the story. So when you go to a place like NIDA or WAPA or these wonderful colleges, they tell you and teach you how to break down a script so that you can deliver what you need to deliver despite all the, the complications, you know. So I'll never forget Angie Milliken, the great Angie Milliken, and myself with beautiful John Stanton doing a play at Belvoir Street. And it was called Master Builder, the most stunning play. I'd learned two amazing lessons from this play. And one of them was, it's such a tiny theatre at Belvoir. It's absolutely tiny. You can, you know, you are further away at this table than the person in the front row. It's scary, you know, like, because they could actually say, I don't believe you could get shoved or whatever, <laughs> maced. <laughs> so it's a bit scary. But um, that particular play, I'll never forget Angie coming down at interval in quite a state. She was really upset because they were making such noise at the back of the theatre. And I could hear it. I was downstairs in that makeup room and they have... The speakers. They've got the speakers so you can hear what's Tannoys. going on on stage. You need them, otherwise you don't know where you're at. You have to sit in the wings and listen for your moment to come on. I could hear a lot of kerfuffle, but I could hear Stanton just powering on and, and Milliken just going. And I thought, I actually wondered whether it was on stage because they didn't miss a beat. But she came off shaking because she was so upset that they were making such noise. Anyway, uh, at the end of the show, we had learned Angie was almost crying with upset that she'd been so angry. Someone had had a heart attack. Oh my goodness. In the back of the theatre, they'd had a heart attack 
And do you know, some ambos had managed to lift this lady out of a seat, put her on a gurney and wheel her out without Stanton and Angie missing a beat, just thinking that there was someone making noise. And they do, can, they can make a lot of noise, <laughs> you know, chewing, telephones. And that was just, to me, that was incredible. Like, if you didn't have training and you didn't know what you were doing script-wise, you didn't have those places you knew you had to get to, like I have to get to a point of absolute ire. I have to make that actor or the other character believe what I'm saying at the end of this act. If you don't have that level of focus and that level of intention, something like that, I'm, you're just like, what? What? I mean, it's deeply distracting. A lot of us have ADHD, you know, like we're distracted like that, particularly if it's fear, fear fear-based. And a lot of noise in the auditorium can create a lot of fear because you're like, what's going on? What's going on? And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget going, thank God it was Angie and thank God it was Stanton. They're just mighty. And that was that lesson. The second lesson was I had one of my first migraines ever before a show. And migraine is one of the worst things to get with lights because they are bouncing straight into your brain and it feels like someone has the sharpest knitting needles and they're just going into your eyeballs. And even the dressing table lights were so bright, I had to turn them off and do my makeup in the dark. And I just didn't know what to do because my character was supposed to be so effervescent and up and naive and have this massive crush on John Stanton. Wasn't hard, that voice. My God, that voice. I was just like, oh. Anyway, and someone with such power, it was easy. But not this night because I had such a damn headache. And Ralph Cottrell, the late, great Ralph Cottrell, who's an amazing, he lived and breathed the theatre and the collaboration. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got to go out there tonight. I've got to go out there tonight. I've just got to, I don't know how to get it up. I don't know how to get it up. I'm supposed to be really enthusiastic. And I'm like this and he goes, darling, and he's putting on his lipstick and he used to do it meticulously every night. Not a, a, not a th- the process to watch someone like that is just bliss. He said, tonight, Kaya Fosley has a headache. And I just went, oh! my character's name was Kaya Fosley. Kaya Fosley has a headache. Oh, my God. Kaya Fosley has a headache. <laughs> Kaya Fosley has a headache. She's got a headache. Like, I mean, I was absolutely blown away. And it was the greatest acting lesson of all. Like, did I flash you? No, you because didn't. Because my home address. And I have to, I've got <laughs> to just tell our listeners, I have a front row seat to Jacqueline oh. McKenzie acting. Like, you are phenomenal. It's like I have this performance that I'm just watching you. Oh, darling. Because she's getting out of a seat. She's showing me everything. She's moving her hands around. But it's I have a to performance. Say, it's because and, I know there's an audience listening. Ah. And I think everything about artists and acting, everything at the end of the day is about the audience. I was very, very, very fortunate to work on The Force of Nature with Eric Banner and the great Robert Connolly, and they are all about story and all about audience. There's nothing else. There's no ego. And Eric embracing a film in which he is the lead and the marquee name, Force of Nature, is about a group of five women who are on a working retreat and they end up going through this horrific sort of experience, getting lost in the, in the Ottaway Ranges where some serious shit has gone down in the past. It's terrifying. And there's Eric just sitting back. You can see him just embracing at a read-through 
There's five really ballsy chicks and me and Tara, the co-writer, and and a tour of Deborah Lee Finesse, Sissy Stranger, Lucy, Robin McLeavy. But we're all there fighting because we're trying to work out what we are doing in these scenes. You know, you enter a scene and this is what's happening at the beginning, but you have to exit a scene changed. The story has to change in that scene. Otherwise, there's no point having the scene. And we're all fighting our corners. Like, well, I think it's about this. Well, it has to be about this. But what about the audience? This is Aaron Falk's journey. How do we reflect back or bounce off or hold up an oppositional force so that the audience can follow Aaron Falk's journey because it's a trilogy? Even though this film stands completely on its own, it is the dry too. So we've seen the amazing dry, you know, and it's really it's a extraordinary. Great film. And I think that's the most beautiful journey. And then you've got Eric Banner. You know, I, I know a lot of beautiful big movie stars who, you know, they, they fight for their screen time. Well, Hugh Jackman. I mean, you were in a high school musical with him. Yeah. Weren't you? Yeah, but, you know, to me, Hugh is the guy from Brigadoon. Which was when you were in high school. Yeah, together. he's the guy from Brigadoon who my friend Deborah Lee Finesse married. So I was in high school at PLC. I'd left a school I'd been at for many, many years and went to a new school for the final two years. And that school... PLC and Pimble used to do musicals with Knox. The school I was at before, which was Winona, these are both um, all-girls schools, by the way, in Sydney, uh, Winona. It's a tiny, tiny school in North Sydney. I just I still love it. And that it did all, all their musicals with Shaw, the local boys' school down the hill. So Shaw boys were it for me. <laughs> they were what you aspired to marry. I did, actually. And I got married in the Shaw Chapel. How's that? Oh, did I you? did. I did. It was an aesthetic thing. I liked the fact that the congregation could face the, the aisle and we could see people's faces, not the backs of their heads, you know. Anyway, that was a whole other thing. Yes, so I went to PLC and did a musical with Knox. It was all very foreign. But, you know, and, and the lead in that was uh, Hugh and he played the lead in Brigadoon. I guess I was in the chorus and uh, the guys in the chorus were really fabulous, fun, you know, totally distracting like wickedly in the Duran Duran phase. So they had the really thick, um, uh, what are they called? Oh, those? well, that, like a, that's, that's a big sort of fringe, fringe that would sweep across. And, and I think even a bit short round here, but a long mullety thing at the back. And I'll never forget the guys I used to hang out with. I don't even know if they could sing, but God, they looked good. And I think they might have even had the eyeliner on at that point. And I was really far busier looking at those than the lead in Brigadoon, who is a real goody-goody. He did not, <laughs> he didn't, I have this thing where I don't see people if I don't, if I don't engage with them. And, and he was too much of a goody-goody for me. I, I, I didn't go for goody-goodies. <laughs> and they didn't go for me. <laughs> Apparently, Deborah Lee did, though, <laughs> and, um, which was really surprising. Yeah, so he's always been the guy from Brigadoon. And, uh, you know, really sweet, wholesome guy. And that was that. And Deborah Lee was always the light and the magnetic. Um, I mean, she's a force of nature. Oh, I total, think she total. has this warmth and yeah. this ease. When she talks, it's like she embraces you with a hug. Yeah. And it's, there's nothing false. There's not, because the beauty of Deb is that she calls it like if you're wearing something strange, she's like, oh, well, this is interesting. What have you got on here? But there's never any judgment. <laughs> it's just funny. Yes. You have fun with Deb and she's right out there on a limb. She's just immediate and so intelligent. But she grew up in Melbourne and took herself over to New York. 
She always wanted to act. And she went to New York and trained in New York. She did the hard yards, a bit like Anthony LaPaglia. But a bit who like he, he you. went there too. No, I trained at NIDA here. But you still, though, you moved to LA mm-hmm. and that life is a hard life. It is. Auditioning, suddenly packing up, heading to a, you know, location on the other side of the world. Mm. How did you manage that? I mean, I can see... I've never managed it. Really? I've never managed it. I'm really just... I admire... You know when you say people that you admire and look at from afar and you just wish you had a little sprinkling of that? I wish I had a sprinkling of strategy in terms of a long-term picture of how a career can look. I never understood you could have that. And I look at Nicole and I just think, I mean, she is truly magnificent. And Russell and, you know, both untrained, if you call working with, you know, the directors they've worked with from a very young age. I mean, you've got a front row seat there with that. That's real training. It's on the go. It's the best training you can get with anything, I think, is apprenticing. And they were apprenticed at the feet of some amazing um, George Miller and, you know, George Ogilvie. And uh, it's pretty amazing. Those guys used to come out to NIDA and speak for half an hour in an auditorium and we'd be like, oh, God, you know. And Tony Collette's another one. I, I just think they have had incredible people in their life who've embraced the strategy or known the strategy and they've been able to trust them. But I think also they've had a keen sense of business along the way. Nicole especially, and I love the fact that, you know, you just sit back and watch her journey and she's always known about the business of acting and about the keen understanding of what an audience wants, what an audience is looking for. She's got balls like you wouldn't want to know. I'll never forget when she did that uh, film where she played Grace Kelly and they annihilated the film at Cannes, I believe. And... You know, it's, it's so crazy when you, when you read shite reviews and you hear in the voices of critics a glee for annihilating and tearing people down. But I'll never forget the press conference after the annihilation of that movie and she fronted up at that press concert. I don't think the director was there. There were people that weren't there. She fronted up there. And, and I'll never forget it, the courage that that must take but maybe it doesn't take courage for her. It would take real courage for me. I think I would have been perpetually at that. You know when you want to go to the toilet and you have that little <laughs> moment where you're just about to do a wee? It's called fear. I think that would have been in my belly the whole time at that interview. But she, I'll never forget the grace. Talk about grace. Oh, She's playing it, Grace she Kelly. Is, and, and she embodied it. Like she embodied it by showing up at that thing. I'll never forget it. Fancy the others not showing up oh, and backing the well, work. gutless. And she because, though Because it's for fearless. the audience. It's not about the critics. And she understands that. It's not about the critics. I understand that too. But in terms of being able to go have the courage to say, I've got some something to write and I really want to write it. And then finding the people and being able to... She's always been very interested in networking, but not at a shitty level, at a real level. I'll never forget when we were at NIDA, she had a 21st and I think she invited the third year NIDAs or maybe all of NIDA, I can't remember, but I was down at Pier 1. She had a 21st there. And when you look at that, you just think, and she was talking to us all and she was a a massive star at that point. Massive. And I mean, I I was tongue-tied. I didn't speak to her because she was on television and I watched Bangkok Hilton and I watched Vietnam and a a couple of the other things she'd been in. So she was someone I I am and will be tongue-tied with, like Tony Randall, you know, like the television stars. But I'll never forget her. It's a real interest in 
the tribe of actors around you. And she's generous. She has the most generous heart and this beautiful generosity of spirit. Now, you mentioned Russell Crowe. I did. And so let's talk about Russell because I remember I love seeing, about Russell. seeing you in Romper Stomper with uh-huh. Russell. My mum took me and both of us afterwards... I can't believe your mum took you. Yes. What did she think it was about? Well, no, no. High she, school. No, she knew what it was Romper about. <laughs> we knew what it was about. But I remember when it finished, we both sat in the cinema shell-shocked in mm. a way. Well, we were shell-shocked, but blown away. And mum and I still talk about you in terms of that extraordinary performance that you gave. And and for both you and Russell, I mean, that was your first big role, wasn't it? Yeah, oh, it's first film. How do you do that? I mean, you talk about... Easy, because it's pe- your first film. You have absolutely no idea how it really? works. Really? Oh, was the best thing to do that film for your first film. It was hard for reasons of my own. Like, it was hard being naked and um, when I didn't quite know I was going to be naked for some of those, so that was a bit tricky. And technically, I'll never forget one of our naked scenes where I was simulating sex. It's so bizarre that we had to do that so much in the the 90s. Nowadays, it's just so weird. I mean, it's so weird a concept that you... I just don't think it's done anymore, is it? I can't remember the last time I saw someone really simulating sex on screen. Not like we did then. In terms of it being real versus... Or just even that it's almost like now, it was like the 50s when they'd go to kiss and it would fade to black. Like the idea of two actors having to get completely naked and have sweat all over. I I mean, it's, it's literal. I go home and I go, I can smell something. Oh my God, I'm, I smell of an actor. And it's, how, it's, it's quite bizarre. Yes, but how do you get your head around that? <laughs> no, but uh, to me... Well, that was my first experience yes. of that. And how do you get your head around that and make that difference between I'm acting and real life? Oh, that's all life. acting. That is all acting. I, I almost become deaf. When I'm doing that, I'm so kind of uncomfortable that we enter into this area of technique and um, storytelling where we're kind of half present not even a quarter present, and everything is just technical. It's like, okay, the camera's there. You just say, what lens are we on? Okay, so what's the bottom of frame? And you get really sort of, I mean, I start swearing a lot. I swear when I get nervous. And I I just laugh. I, I try and laugh and, and try and make it as quick as you can and get through it and out the other side. But it's a while since I've had to do it, thank God, because it is very uncomfortable. But, you know, on that movie, there were so many moments that were absolutely hysterical with Russell and, you know, particularly some of those scenes. I mean, I didn't know that I was going to have my pants off in the scene where there's a swastika. And um, I understood that I would be on all fours, but I didn't know that my pants would be off. And I, I was told I could leave them on. But the camera was on the side. And when it came to action, it was like, okay, um, are you ready, Jack? And I'm like, yep, yep, I'm ready. And Russell's sort of behind me and, and I'm ready. It's bad enough because I don't have a bra on at this point and I know I'm being seen even though my hand's like this and the camera's there. But it was like, are you ready? And then it was explained that they can see my pants. And I went, well, but don't I get to keep them on? No, not at this point. And I was like, oh my God, I think I must have just been fear mis- that got the misunderstanding or not. I don't know what, but anyway. So I said, but hang on a minute. <sighs> He's behind me. And I didn't want to say this loudly because everyone's around. If he's behind me, he doesn't have any pants on. No. I don't have any pants on. No. But what if 
I mean, he's got a touch. What, what, what if he's got something? <laughs> what if he has something? Like what? It's going to make contact. And I was absolutely freaking out about the reality had hit that you can only laugh through it so much at the end of the day. And I knew that he'd want to hide himself. And so I just went, okay, I need to come up with something. So Annabelle Gazy, who had provided me with a little onesie, a flesh-coloured onesie that I could wear on set but had to come down during the takes, um, I said, could you please get me that onesie? Can I cut it? And she said, yes. I said, I need double-sided tape and some scissors. And I sat on that bed in front of the swastika and Russell's got a robe on by now. He's probably having a cigarette waiting. And I literally devised a piece like a G-string without the sides. And I, I think they make them now. I wish I had have patented, frankly. And I got double-sided tape from the gaffers. <laughs> it wasn't even wardrobe tape. It was like really Brazilian time when I had to get it off. And I taped it all the way up. And then I thought, now what? What do I do with the back bit? So I thought, oh, I'll leave it. They won't see it. Anyway, so um, I was then ready. And I was ready because I was much happier. I felt like I'd done something to protect my modesty or I'd done something to, to save Jackie. That, that, that the one little piece of Jackie well, was left a bit of was your my power. the one piece of Jackie that was left was this tiny piece of double-sided taped cut-up onesie that I'd shoved down there, and um, I'll never forget. I was so scared. I think I'd come out in nervous rashes, and I was laughing, and so I, I get back down. I'm ready. Okay, I'm ready now. And then um, Russell steps on, on onto set, which means kneels on the bed behind me. And I'll just never forget him laughing, looking down. He goes, what's this, mate? What's this? And he's laughing his head off. And I'm going, what, what, what's what? And I'm like this, having a tiff with it. What? And he goes, what's this? And there's this bunch of material like this <laughs> sticking up. <laughs> I can't even, it's like this, like that. Can you see it? Like, and he's going like this. Listeners, what we have to provide a photo for you for oh that. Oh, my God. It was like, okay, it was like it, the material had sort of, by the time I got on my all fours, the material had gathered like a ponytail and was sticking up like a fountain of material up over my back. Of course you could see it. And Russell's like, what the hell is that? So I'm like, go away. I need the scissors. <laughs> so I had to do some more trimmage, <gasps> but that was it. And we did the take. And halfway through this take where I'm supposed to be moaning, I looked down and the flap of material had come loose. <gasps> and I just went bang and I pushed it down and pretended that it was something to do with the action and held my stomach. And I was like, stick down, stick down. And then I looked down, it's stuck. So I was like, yeah, but that's in the movie. Me going <laughs> like this. I mean, and thank God for Russell that he had a great sense of humour about it because he knew, I mean, I don't think he'd done any scenes like that himself. He was probably just as bloody worried about, maybe she's got something, mate. Maybe she's got something. <laughs> I don't know. We don't want to catch anything, do we? I remember sitting with Kate Blanchett once at a function for Sydney Theatre Company and she was explaining how she plans life and, and she said, well, it's sort of part of the seven-year plan is to do this, this, this. And I said, what's, what seven-year plan? And she said, well, life sort of comes in, I think, it feels like every seven years there's a big change, a bit of a shake-up. You think about your life and you count back 
and see if it's seven years that it'd be. And I looked at it and I, in front of her. She's so beautiful, Kate. Oh my God, what a generous, beautiful human being. She's just watching. And I'm going, <gasps> like, that's a silent. I'm literally miming, counting on my fingers seven years and going, oh, because seven years something happened. And then seven years later, that's when my life fell apart personally. And seven years later, my mum dies. Or so, you know, and it's tr- it felt true. And she said that she sort of works to a seven-year plan. And I, like I said to her, oh my God, she said, don't you? I was like, no. She goes, well, how, what's your plan? And I went, I can't plan seven minutes in advance. Seven years. I mean, that is unheard of to me. But what's so amazing about Kate is she can manage to be so present on stage and so present in any of her work and yet still have this trajectory of where she's going outside of life that is like this beautiful steel rod that keeps her on her path and keeps her strong and able and, um, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, I'm just observing, but I'd love to be able to have that. And that's a bit like the strategy I'm talking about. That's a bit like Nicole's, to have that bedrock of some other strength. And maybe it's just knowing where you're going. I remember when I was married, my ex-husband, you know, he couldn't believe that every six months, three months, two months, I'd be off somewhere or another job would come along and you're sort of darting here and darting there. And he was like, but hang on a minute. You can't just, you've got to know, you've got to be able to plan. I said, but I can't plan. I can't plan because I don't know where the work is or when it's coming or what it's going to be. He said, but that's just like being like, I mean, Katy Perry's saying about it, like a plastic bag, you know, sort of flying around the universe. And it does feel a bit like that for me, that I am sort of tossed around a bit. And so I have this incredibly creative um, spirit and creative endeavour that I'll be writing something in between gigs and I'll just go down the rabbit hole, do all this amazing research, live and breathe it. And then I come out the other side and whatever I was doing before feels like, oh my God, what? (laughs) What? It's very hard to pick that up again. I wish I could. And what I notice that you do is that you talk a lot about other people's strengths, how other people have managed to carve their way through life. How would you describe how you've done that? Um, So many different things. I feel like that plastic bag is actually a really good analogy in a way. but being a plastic bag sounds really bad. I don't think it was been bad at all. I think I've been blessed to have been in a job that has allowed me to say, you know what, I, I miss my boyfriend. He's in England. I just want to go and see him. I'm sick of bloody texting him and I want to go and see him and just jump on a plane and off I go. And I'm there and the next minute I'm back on a plane to LA because a job's happened. And I'm very lucky that I've lived a life that has been in support of that. I'm lucky because I save my money. And that's one of the things, you know, when you talk to young actors and, and you, they come and ask, oh, what do you do? How do you become an actor? And that's one of the big ones. Learn to earn a dollar and save a dollar. It's one thing I wish they taught at acting school, business, how to earn a dollar and save it because there will be rainy days when you're not working. And if you manage to save that money on that rainy day, you don't have to go and wait tables you can be riding your exercise bike or jogging around the, the neighbourhood, practising vowels, practising accents, just honing craft, honing craft, reading about life, engaging in life. Yeah, so I think that's the big thing. I think I have been lucky to have been lived a very impulsive life 
and I love it because being creative, it's not a decision. It's not a, a sort of attitude I put on. It's how I live. It's how I engage with the world. Well, it's who you are. I looked at one of your podcasts. I can't remember who it was because I've listened to a lot of them. And there was a man who was saying the opposite of depression is connection. That who was, was that? That was Matt Agnew. Right. Who was on The Bachelor and he was amazingly open about mm. his bipolar. Oh, wow. And we had an extraordinary conversation together. Mm. Well, I believe that that connection thing, I, I absolutely concur it's funny because I really do isolate myself, but I think it's a necessary, it must be a necessary thing for me. As an essentially shy person, you're going to laugh. I am essentially quite shy. I was a redhead growing up with like see-through white skin and freckles and a bowl cut, and I would blush at, at anyone who knew they could make me blush, as they say, would make you blush. And it was just like being at the mercy of everybody all the time. I was just hypervigilant all the time hoping I wouldn't blush, particularly when it came to boys, you know. My God, it was the pits. And I think that that connection thing, I love. The other day we had our opening night of Force of Nature and there I was with Deborah Lee, who's been in New York and been, you know, a, a mum, a very present mum and it's such an inspiration as a parent and as an advocate for Adopt Change and all her work she's done to sustain her connection to her kids even though she's one of our absolute great actresses of all time. I mean, she's just an inspiration as a as technician on you. set, though. You but see. it's on set. But these are the people that shape me. And if I could carry myself on a set the way Deborah Lee does, then I've, I've won. I mean, I'll never forget when I first met her. I've said it recently because we're doing press together, but... I first met her, it was a particularly dark time. We'd just done Romper Stomper and the lead actor in that had decided he didn't want to live anymore and seen that through to a very horrible and painful end for many, many people in his life and myself included and Deb who knew him. I'd met him on a film set and I'd seen... And that was Daniel Pollock? Yes, and it was a bit like an awakening to, to how good and bad film sets can be and this life that we live because he had... Uh, he had a heroin addiction that he'd been battling for a long time. Probably at the base of that was alcoholism. And he was, you know, he'd expressed a lot of sadness about many things in his life. I think he'd been in a, a shocking car accident where someone had died and he was at the wheel of that and he just never, never forgave himself for that. So when he would sober up, he couldn't face what was there when he sobered up. It's a strange thing because in those days, we couldn't even say the word. I, I find it hard saying the word heroin, but there we are, I just said it. I find it so hard. It's such a terrifying, horrific word to me. It's hard to get in my mouth. It was almost terrifying before I met him and before I had my life had been impacted by it personally. Like I knew it was a bad thing. You'd see it on the front of papers and I knew it was a word that was terrifying. And so I'd, I'd sort of had this, this love-hate thing with Rumpa Stomper that it put me in touch with these beautiful creatives. I've never felt so exhilarated in my life as some of those days shooting where we're running along alleyways with Daniel Pollock just charging up the head with Russell. I'm chasing him. They're turning. They're helping me run. It was really, we were running on the seat of our underpants. A lot of that was not practiced. It was literally, okay, we're losing light and it's raining Ron Hagen, get on the back of that motorbike. 
get your camera out, you're shooting on the back of the motorbike and we're just chasing a motorbike. And I was not fit like Russell and I just wasn't born to run like that, particularly in those outfits they had us in. And then there's Dan Wiley next to me and Dan and I did our first play together and he's still one of the mightiest men in my life and inspiration. I'm there running and and total exhilaration and I feel probably for the first time that I belong somewhere. I belong with these people. It's tribal, you know, it's, it's this feeling of belonging and connection. We're all like a sport game when you're playing football, I guess. Um, if you play football or hockey, there's the ball, which is the story. And there's your wing, your forwards, your defence, your supporting characters, and you are charging to get that ball in the goal. And there's chance, there's levels of chance, and there's magic, and there's there's skill involved and there's at the at the end of the day there's teamwork and to be a part of that is the most exciting place you could ever be and that's why you act so I had that experience on Rumpa Stompa and yet this lead actor who I had had a relationship with fallen pretty madly in love with him actually had a heroin addiction that I was absolutely not aware of because he was being paid I guess to work. So he was able to fund it, fund this addiction and use responsibly, I guess. He wasn't, you know, he he could show up and be, I guess it's functioning. It's like a functioning alcoholic, they say, or a functioning addict. He was able to use just enough to get through the day without breaking into hot sweats or stuff. I mean, yeah, you disappeared a few times and, and what have you, but I had no idea what was underlying all that. And the pain. I'll never forget seeing Rumpa Stomper on the big screen for the first time. It was actually in Taormina at the film festival. And right before they played that David Lynch series, Twin Peaks. They had Twin Peaks the movie. The theme song for that was so haunting and beautiful. And the next minute, I just couldn't get that out of my head. And that linked into Daniel. I sat there watching this thing in this gorgeous ancient amphitheater in Sicily and Taormina and just watching Romba Stomper and seeing Daniel's face just huge up there. And I, I've found it very hard over the years to divorce my personal experience of the making of that with the personal side of my life at that time and how that impacted me. So long story short, very long story and it wasn't short. Um, coming back to Deborah Lee, the next job after that was on Stark with Nadia Tass. What a beautiful girl she is. Um, she'd apparently met with her crew in production office and said um, that the lead actress had recently lost someone. So just be aware of that and be mindful of that. And I was, I was just looked after so beautifully on that. But in terms of how to carry myself, knowing that that happened on that set, on Romper Stomper, and I'd lost someone, it's literally like sticking your finger in a power bank. You know, when they say, you know, you don't stick your finger in a power socket twice you get a shock. Well, the experience of Romper Stomper gave me more than a bloody shock. The aftershocks are still with me today. So I didn't know quite how to carry myself on a set after that. And it was, that was my first film. So I'd learned about this incredible process, this exhilaration, this teamwork, this, inc- I mean, the making of was just astonishing in so many ways. And it's never been as good. And yet the pain was so, so seismic that um, 
the next time I went to set, it was with a little trepidation. Not be, and I didn't cognizantly think, oh my God, I can't meet anyone. And it wasn't even that. It was just an innate defense mechanism where you're just, oh shit, I'm, my finger's going towards the socket because the last time I was here and this is what happened. You know, it's just that absolute animal reaction of, you it's, know, it's not trauma. to do it again. And then, but I kept being told that Deborah Lee Finesse was arriving. And I'll never forget, like, we were down rehearsing this series and uh, it was raining this Melbourne day and I was in this dingy, bloody thing, scared shitless, and it was pretty dim, let me say. And this door opened and it was, we were underneath a church and it was literally like those images of an angel that have beams of light. You know, they're depicted in paintings like beams. It was literally like, the door opened. You couldn't have actually shot something like this. There was dust in the air, these beams of light come in, and then in walked Deb, like bathed in light. And that lightness, it just kind of saved me in a way. And she gave me such unconditional belief and encouragement and compassion and humour and joy, just joy. She brought joy back and she's so sort of beautifully cheeky and... Have you been able to tell her that? Yeah, I have. I have. I could talk about it for hours, the impact that that moment of her entering my life was like. I know that that's probably what happened to you, you know, like that's, it is just mesmeric and it's the generosity, you know, she opens her heart and her little black book of connections to everybody. I believe when Nicole first went to Hollywood, Deborah was over there and and she was in an apartment in Hollywood and had the world at her feet. And, you know, I, I think it's pretty common knowledge, I don't know, but she had a dreadful car accident over there and was nearly killed. And it shattered her ankle and her foot and her leg. And she was in traction and in bed for prob... I can't remember how many months, but it was months and months recuperating. And Tom Berlinson was over there with her. And, you know, it's funny. They say when there's heat about you, when you've got some heat, you know, yeah, it's heat. She's an angel baby. She's got heat. Let's meet Jacqueline McKenzie. She's an angel baby. Won all the AFIs, whatever it was at the time, you know. She had so much heat about her with that movie Shame and then has this massive accident and has to recoup. And she can't ride that wave, you know? I mean, we were very fortunate that we, we managed to get her back and that she was on that um, set with me, singing KD Lang in my trailer, you know, miming it in the back of the bus. And we were just had hilarity. And I'll just never forget it. So I, I rate her as a mentor of sorts, but through observation and just through just watching and going, oh man, I just want a bit of that little, I, I want to do that. I want to be that person on a film set. It's just inspiring. You are inspiring. Oh, God. You are. And I want a bit of that. What oh my you God. have. For me, what has been such a privilege about talking with you is I feel like I've been on an entire journey with you. <laughs> I do. In all sorts of movies, characters, and this life that you've led. But you have this extraordinary ability to communicate and express. And it's little wonder that whatever screen you are on, 
you steal that moment. Oh, my God. You do. And I, as I mentioned early on, I'll never forget seeing you on the screen with my mum. And whenever I've seen you subsequently on the screen, I'm always drawn to you. So it's been such a privilege to feel that I've had you oh, in this you. studio. I love that. And in I, this I love it. sort of screen. And, and I would love our listeners, as they have listened to you, that I know that you've taken them on almost a cinematic journey with your descriptions and storytelling. So thank I wanna, you. I want to say something, though. I want to talk a little bit more about connection because uh, we've all been in COVID and, wow, that has been a, a shocker. And we've also just come out of an acting strike and a writer's strike in LA, in America, SAC, Screen Actors Guild. And it was really necessary that they had to do that because all our contracts predate streaming. And so a bunch of the contracts we've had, I mean, we don't see a cent for anything on those streaming services and all our films are on there. So that's been a really necessary thing, but a very painful thing. So I was in Los Angeles and I was driving around. This is after COVID. I was there during COVID because I was making a movie, a reshoots on a thing called Malignant. And I flew in because I was contracted. So I got special dispensation from the government to go in. And when you're walking through the airport at Sydney Airport and even the machines that have chippies in them and M&Ms and stuff... Even those are empty and locked up or not even locked up, they're just empty. And you just think, my God, the reach that this has had, that COVID has had, that even the man who stacks the machine and the person who collects the money and changes the machine from that, you know, how many jobs did that annihilate, you know? You know, we saw about the cafes, we saw our restaurants shutting up shop, our cinemas, our theatres, everything shutting just everybody, you know? And the acting strike was very similar because LA is all about our filmmaking from the lawyers to the designers to the people who clothe you. And there's a beautiful quote. I've got to get it out of my bag. Do you mind if I dip down and get it? Grab it. And it reminded me very, very, very much of being in COVID and having to remember what it is we do. What, why is art important? What is it between the audience and us that that happens. And I'll read it to you because I think it's really quite beautiful. It's a quote by Tennessee Williams, the great playwright, beautiful playwright. So he said this, I've walked a long and rocky road and what really mattered, what should matter most to you, is the rare and gorgeous experience of reaching out through your work and your actions and connecting to others. A message in the bottle thrown towards another frightened, loveless queer, a confused mother, a recently dejected man who can't see his way home. We get people home. We let them know that we're here for them. This is what art can do. Art should be the arm and the shoulder and the kind eyes, all of which let others know you deserve to live and to be loved. That is what matters, baby, bringing people home. Isn't that gorgeous? I mean, that is just so gorgeous. I just, I just find that utterly exquisite. Oh, it Those makes things keep me, me going. It keeps me going. And that's how I've lived my life, really, not bringing people home. I aspire to do that. But being constantly inspired by people and being able to, or not able to, it's all, it's just how I live my life. I'm fascinated by other people's lives. I'm fascinated by 
humanity. I'm fascinated by everybody's quirks and problems and temperaments. And, you know, I, I love complexity and it's how to bring that. It's why someone like Eric Banner is so and Russell are so and you, complex. Give me your hands and let me I just think say. I think they're a bit like mine sweaty. are always sweaty and clammy. Are they? <laughs> You're thank cold. You. <laughs> thank you, Warm Jess. heart, but thank you. And thank you for your beautiful podcast. Oh. Like, I'm a fan and I laugh myself stupid with David Wenham. <laughs> He's a great inspiration. <laughs> he is extraordinary too. I could talk for hours underwater. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why I love you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. So, what do you reckon? Isn't Jacqueline phenomenal? The stories, the passion, the way she describes things. She really takes you on this extraordinary journey. And there were so many moments in that conversation where I had goosebumps just looking at her, thinking, here is a woman who's at the peak of her craft. Yes, she was herself, but I was looking, thinking, she is taking me on a ride, on an experience. And it was an absolute privilege to have her in the podcasting studio. God, I love her. It was a real honour. Now, if you want to see Jacqueline in action on the big screen, Force of Nature, The Dry 2, it's in cinemas now, where you can see Jacqueline alongside Eric Banner and Deborah Lee Furness. We've got so many incredible guests for you this year on the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast, and it would mean so much for me if you subscribe to the show, because then we know you. You can get in contact with us. You can let us know what you love, who you'd like to hear from, because that's what it's about. As Jacqueline mentioned in our conversation, it's about connection, and I love to connect with all of you. It is free. It also means that all of these great conversations will be quicker for you to access. That's why we want you to subscribe and you'll never have to go searching anywhere to get an episode. Now, if there's someone in your life who will love hearing Jacqueline talk about the craft of being an actor, what it's like to work alongside many of Hollywood's big names, and also some of the challenges that she's faced along the way, why not share this chat with them? All you need to do is to tap the three dots on your screen and pass it on. Now, if you love my chat with Jacqueline, I reckon you're gonna love my chat with guest David Wenham. And we'll put a link in the show notes for you. All you have to do is two things, and they seem very, very simple things, is listen, listen real, think, think real. If you do those two things, everything else falls into place. And it seems such a simple thing, but I can tell you that 90% of actors don't actually do either of those things. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.